The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and joining me today, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Um, we'll be talking about St. Joseph the Worker, um, the Ember Days, Rogation Days, and if we have time, we'll try to get to Corpus Christi. There's just so much going on liturgically this month, uh, it was hard to pick what to talk about, Your Excellency. That That is certainly true. This morning, I've been trying to think a little bit as I was preparing the, the program but a way possibly to connect everything together. But may I suggest, since this is, especially since it's a devotional show, shall we start with a devotional prayer or two to put the right, yeah. the right spirit in things? Good. This Absolutely. is a prayer for the church militant. O glorious St. Joseph, chosen by God to be the foster father of Jesus, the chaste spouse of Mary ever virgin, and the head of the Holy Family, and then appointed by the vicar of Christ, to be the heavenly patron and defender of the church founded by Jesus, most confidently do I implore at this moment thy powerful aid for all the church militant on earth. Do thou shield with thy truly paternal love all the bishops and priests who are in union with the Holy See of Peter. Be the defender of all who labor for souls amidst the trials and tribulations of this life and cause all the peoples of the earth to submit themselves in a docile spirit to that church, which is the ark of salvation for all men. Amen. St. Joseph, patron of all who are dedicated to labor, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Joseph and labor and ember days. I think the word, and then, as you say, a, a month that's full of, uh, of Catholic observances, uh, Devotions, the May devotions, uh, uh, the, um, the observance of the Holy Ghost, the Pentecost novena, the most ancient novena, church history, uh, the, and then ending with the great feast day of Corpus Christi. I think if we look at the word ember and ember days, I think that we'll be able to see uh, a proper link between everything. Ember, um, of course, means a in standard English, a glowing coal, something that's still burning there in the ashes. And sometimes people think that uh, the ember days is somehow a reference to that. Well, it is and it isn't. It isn't historically or 
concerning uh, the origin of language. The uh, ember as a glowing coal in the ash comes from Old Norse and then Old English. Eventually, they, they trace it, though, to Latin orere, meaning to, to burn. The ember that we're speaking about in the ember days in this program, that comes from another Old English or Old Saxon word, imbren, meaning a circuit, a recurring season or period of time, and anniversary. A little bit like the um, Matins hymn for Pentecost that we're uh, praying this week, currens per ani circulum, running through the cycle or the circle of the year, and that's the whole story of the uh, of the liturgical life, isn't it? There's always a there's always a, there's a, a cycle, a circle that's that's always repeated. The um, I think the idea of the Ember Days, though, should be that of um, there there's something that's still alive. It's burning, but it's your job as a Catholic to take up that ash and gently to blow it into life again and to let that flame uh, inflame your own heart, your family, your own way of life, to live the Catholic way, to live the Church's way, which is inevitably to live the sacred liturgy. Uh, You see that with the... Ember Day observances that we should we should speak speak about today, as they are very very ancient, and you see it also with uh, modern feast days or even changes in the liturgy, such as the introduction in 1955 of the uh, feast day of Saint Joseph the Worker and the abolition of the feast day of Saint Joseph, the solemnity of Saint Joseph, the patron saint, the protector of the uh, of the Catholic Church. Um, so, so there's there's this idea. Well, with the Ember Days, the idea is that of some authors say, especially this is the this is uh, uh, the original ancient uh, civil observance, something that that has to do with just regular, normal, if you will, worldly or even secular life. If you could have that kind of a concept way back then, when everything was viewed as sacred, it's a harvest festival. The Ember Days are so the harvest festival for uh, June. Was that of the har- the harvest itself, the Ember Days, and those are those. Tomorrow we have the first of our of our summer Ember Days, Pentecost Wednesday. September was for the uh, the harvest of the grapes, the vintage, the vintage, vintage, the French would say, the making of wine, and then December was a planting of the winter wheat, and so it was a planting festival. Uh, sowing of seed. The spring uh, ember days are really more are later and more Lenten already in their in their liturgical their liturgical theme. So um, the idea of the ember days is to sanctify the four seasons of the year and to give thanks to Almighty God for the blessings that nature has provided us. We lead such unnatural lives today, as it were, uh, are, are cut off from that. We're cut off from the field and from uh, from an agricultural-based uh, life or culture. But the, the Ember Days call us back, in, in a good sense, to Mother Earth and to that which is... Uh, that which is normal and natural, and then introducing this, the supernatural theme, they make us to thank Almighty God for for these benefits, to pray that Almighty God will continue uh, them upon us, and uh, to make us to 
give back to God. So the Ember Days are considered by the church as the tithe of the year. You know, Protestants are great about paying tithes, theoretically anyway. Catholics are very poor about paying tithes. Tithing is an Old Testament notion of the Dechima, the 10% that, that was to be given to Almighty God. Well, this is the uh, the ten percent of the year because there are four Ember days. So you have uh, you have uh, four times um, three, three days, and then you get twelve, and then that gives you your your ten percent of of the of the year that is to be given to Almighty God in his in his worship. Now, how is that? How do you observe an Ember day? Well, you observe an Ember day by fasting and by some form of abstinence, which is always connected with the fasting, so that even if you're not fasting, uh, nevertheless, you still, as we did this past Saturday, you still abstain from meat, uh, except at the principal meal. You only eat meat once. That's a little sort of a nod towards the uh, old fast, whereby you didn't uh, you didn't eat meat at all, or the current fasting rules. If you're fasting, you're, you only eat meat once, and that at the... Uh, Principal meal, so that's a principal observance of the Ember Days, and you see it's it's, it's tie in with something uh, natural um, and a more of a natural or normal form of life. The other things we should keep in mind is that the Ember Days have a connection as well with the Old Testament, and they have a connection as well with the uh, priesthood. With the priesthood. Um, I always tell the people when I announce the Amber Days, well, these are days that we are meant to pray for those who are uh, studying for the priesthood who will be ordained at this season of the year to the priesthood. So we have a uh, subdeacon, for example, at our seminary in Florida, and he will be ordained on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul to the diaconate. Well, now we all want to be praying for this young man that he will be a worthy deacon in time than uh, a worthy priest of God. In the old days and for centuries since Pope uh, St. Gelasius, who died at the at the end of the uh, 5th century, the Ember Days, the Ember Saturday, was set aside as the ordination day. And so very often in the life of a pope in the breviary, you'll read about how many ordinations he had in the month of December. December was the big day for the ordination to the priesthood. And if you follow the Mass on an Ember Day in your Missal, you will see ordination of porters here, ordinations of lectures here, connected with the, with the different lessons that are appointed to be read in the longer, more ancient uh, Ember Day Masses. Uh, the Ember Day too. we also want to remember that that's the, uh, the remnant, like the Pentecost Vigil or Holy Saturday, uh, these are the remnants of the ancient all-night vigil of prayer, the Panuchis, that that was observed for centuries in Rome. Uh, the Catholics would, uh, as, as invited by St. Leo the Great, who gave magnificent sermons about the Ember Day observance, the Catholics then were invited then to prolong their fast from Friday, Friday the day on which our Lord died, to Saturday, the day on which our Lord lay in the sepulcher and then at Saturday night to meet at St. Peter's tomb, and then to pass the night in prayer. Boy, they were really serious about things back then. And it was in the context of that, that all-night prayer, that the orders, minor and major, were given, and, and even the consecration of bishops, which took place at or near the uh, tomb of St. Peter in the, uh, in the Vatican. So there's that element with our Ember Days. So you see how ancient and how important they are. 
But it's important to observe them to try to try to breathe some life into the coals. Then, last of all, I also wanted to mention about the um, Ember Days as being sort of a Catholic reference or more, more of a claim. We're staking our claim every year to the Old Testament feast days that you would hear about in terms of uh, modern-day Jewish religion. Uh, that is to say, New Year's Day, uh, the Jewish Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, and the Passover itself in the spring of the year. All of these feast days, Ember, Ember Days remind us by the liturgical readings that were chosen from the Old Testament with allusion to them, all of these feast days do not serve an end or a purpose in and of themselves, but like everything in the Old Testament, I, I don't think you could emphasize this enough, it's a flashing light to point to the New Testament. So these um, observances, they are ours, they belong to us, they're our heritage. And so the Church in her readings celebrates them and makes reference to the observance uh, during the Ember Days of these ancient, let us not say Jewish, but let us say Old Testament feasts. So then that's, that's really part of our, of, of our observance as well. Well, I think uh, all of those are really interesting points, Jack, since I think many, many Catholics, even some traditional Catholics, might just think of the Ember Days as one more day they can't eat bacon uh, on top of all, <laughs> of all the Fridays. <laughs> Of the year. I think so, you're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, I know that I know that on yeah. days um, on so, some days I I might even think that way that uh, when you know we get to a Wednesday I go oh there's a half a fish there I have to I have to be mindful of that but I think you make a good point because I get my I get my food from a grocery store as opposed to from the right. fields there's not there's not a organic connection to the liturgy and it's so fascinating to think about that idea the idea of liturgy in concert with nature, that when yes. those of us who don't work in the field, um, this is an artifact. They're like, oh, there, there's a harvest going on? Well, I guess that, that means I'll have to go to the farmer's market. You know, that's our own sort of uh, secular uh, connection, <clears throat> excuse me, secular connection to the change in seasons. Or, you know, we'll see different things at the, on the menu at restaurants when we go out. But having a liturgical tie-in I think is is wonderful, and it it's just a reminder of of not only days gone past culturally, but frankly days gone by technologically. You know, big big agra, you know, now feeds us all sorts of poisonous food, and uh, we wouldn't exactly want to celebrate the change between the seasons uh, with them, I suppose. No, probably not. But but isn't that interesting, Stephen, to think of it that uh, today, and certainly as part of the 20th century. You have all of these these back to nature movements, and so today we have the solemn and the sacred observance of Earth Day. Then there's the environment. There's the gospel of global warming. Um, so modern, but modern, stop and think about it. Modern man has a really unusual, not to say perverse, relationship with nature. As you say, most people lead urban lives, and therefore they're almost entirely cut off from nature good argument for the proper observance of the Ember Days because it gives you a little bit of a connection with the world that the good God gave us. Um, but then when, when, when the modern world embraces nature, what do they do? They always pervert it. 
either pervert it by making a god out of it, as the ancient pagans did, and then that takes you back to the original Catholic notion of taking the pagan festivals, and as St. Gregory the Great told St. Augustine to do in England, when he sent the monks to, to convert the Angles and the Saxons, and to literally to sprinkle holy water on, just to sanctify it, to get rid of the bad stuff, the demonic or the occult, and that which was natural and good, to sanctify and tie in with some, some Catholic theme. Uh, that's the Catholic approach, but the the the, uh, the world's approach is either to, is to make some sort of a god out of it, and then as they make a god out of it, well, that's a false god, so they get the devil there. So then you're going to have perversion. So the, the, what what do we do except pervert all of these things? So you know, very much in the news today, the perversion of marriage, the perversion of sex change, uh, the perversion of scientific. Work, say the the aim at clone, cloning a human being, that sort of thing. Um, so so when modern man discovers uh, a, a love of nature, it's simply something which is unnatural. I came across a good quote from Chesterton, who usually has something good to say on topics like these. He says that um, only the Christian can truly love nature, because the Christian will not worship nature. I thought that was very interesting. We worship with the aid of nature, on the occasion of nature, but we do not worship nature. So we may be we or we alone, are, who are not the global warming, you know, Earth Mother types. We are the ones who truly do love nature. But you know, we, we do need to be reminded of the fact that there is nature out there, and uh, and that therefore we should try to lead more natural lives. A liturgical life, liturgical spirituality, uh, does that. It keeps us entirely grounded in, in, in a very healthy way. Absolutely. And I want to I move on to St. Joseph, Your Excellency, but I, I suppose I could tie it in with St. Saint. Saint Joseph was the head of a household, and, and the head of a household would be responsible for the tithes. I thought I, I just right. wanted to touch on your comment a bit about, uh, you know, at least I would say... Uh, Mormons in this country are the most famous. I think that you are, you actually have to turn in your tax returns to the church um, so that your contribution yeah. can be certified. Yes, um, yes and they you, do. Yes. I know you don't ask for anybody's tax returns, Your Excellency. So why do you think that <laughs> might... Why do you think... Uh, even, though, even though we're here in Cincinnati, the great capital of the IRS. IRS, And do yes. be celebrated lately. <laughs> but, uh, no, we don't... We don't, <laughs> we don't do ask think, for tax uh, returns... You, would you say modern Catholics are bad? American Catholics or Catholics in general aren't as mindful of tithing as we should be? I would say that um, no one is as mindful of tithing as he should be, but there are different explanations for it. So therefore, um, for Catholics in other countries, say in Europe, in old Europe, well, that's understandable in a sense because... Um, the church paid the salary, for example, of of priests in in many countries, and uh, the collection, the Sunday collection, would be only maybe some sort of a little bit of a of a symbolic offering. Each country, depending on the concordats and the the era, had its own arrangements for that. But in the United States, the church has always depended upon the free will offerings of the faithful. Uh, so. Um, while we uh, we have never really stressed tithing, tithing is something which is, is more Mormon or or more Protestant. Nevertheless, we do teach as sort of a good rule of thumb the five percent that 
that you should give 5% of your income to the church, and another 5% you should set aside for the poor and for, for good causes, uh, including the education of future priests and, and for the sick and for religious and things like that. Uh, so and that and that would give you that would give you your ten, but but no Catholics as a rule tend to be uh, cheap with God, and Protestants often put us to shame. Look at how the Pro- uh, Protestant will will uh, give not only the tithe of his income, but speaking of things liturgical, how a Protestant thinks not a uh, devout evangelical Protestant thinks nothing about giving the whole of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath to the worship of God. Now, obviously, the Protestants went to extremes because they don't have uh, the, the moderation of uh, the mother and the mistress, the teacher, the Catholic Church. Nevertheless, there's something very edifying there. You know, evening services. They, they would think nothing of that that's a normal way to observe the day. Of course, you go back to church again in the evening, and you would have uh, have yet another service. They're not going to be doing vespers and benediction, but the idea is that they're giving the whole of the day to God. So they're giving. They're generous, and that's something that's something that we have lost because we're too worried about uh, the bacon, shall we say? <laughs> Either bringing home the bacon, that is to say, work, 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 and there we do need the example of Saint Joseph, uh, or we're too worried about. Uh, the bacon, that is to say, uh, the food, food for the belly and my own comfortable way of life and everything else is sort of to be held at arm's length and minimalized, minimalized instead of maximized. Yeah, I think, I think all of us could, could be reminded. I think sometimes when we're in church, we get the notion that, you know, everything is, uh, our Lord will provide, right? Of course, mm-hmm. they, then then they forget the the parentheses. Uh, you're supposed to help provide. <laughs> you're you're part sure, of, of, that, exactly. of that provide providing. So I think sometimes we sure. we just uh, we're in we're in mass and and we we have access. Those of us who do have access to the liturgy, we we sometimes forget that all of this is it's a community effort um, and it's something that we all have to pitch in. Whether it be time, as you say, sometimes uh, the church uh, or sometimes the church has to be slept. Or uh, the priests have to be fed, and um, and we all need to pitch in. But we could we could sure, definitely, of that, definitely yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was thinking in terms of that, you know, the severe individualism which marks modern man, and which is anti-communitarian. And I use the term communitarian in a good sense. Thus, profoundly anti-Catholic or or anti anti-liturgical. So, what's what? Talk about money for a moment. Our attitude towards money is, uh, you know, the, the Catholic attitude towards money is that it's in effect a necessary evil that we we gain, we're meant to gain enough to be able to to make our livelihood, and then everything anything over and above that is invidious. It's not a help. It's not a glory. It's a weight to pull you down. And what you need over and above the susten your decent sustenance according to your state of life. And obviously, a millionaire's state of life is not the same as a as a poor widow. But anything you need over and above, you're meant to get rid of. You're the berry in the bosom of the poor, that the saints would say. So that's uh, uh, that's um, that, that's that's part of it. And and the realization of these things is a practical blowing on the embers. It's getting the fire going again. And then then uh, in, in addition to that, there is um, also meant to be. Uh, the, as, you, as you mentioned, the, um, the effort, the work, 
the, the giving of one's time and one's energy to support these things instead of just leaving it to somebody else and heal. You know, I've got mine and you get yours kind of a thing. Or I'm, I'm going to get something for free. This is great. You know, I can throw a couple bucks into the basket when it passes by or maybe nothing at all. And um, I've, I've gotten by for another week without having to give anything to the church. It's really, um, it's, uh, well, it's very far from the, from the Christian ideal of life. And it's St. Joseph, a poor man, uh, the, very, the very model of all, of all poor working men, who is meant to come to the rescue here. And I'm sure that was sincerely uh, the motivation of Pope Pius XII when just at the very end of his reign, he established uh, the feast day of St. Joseph the Worker. Well, you, you've come on. You've come on to our next topic very well, Your Excellency. Um, so Thank this you. is something. This is something that you. Uh, this is a feast that you don't celebrate, correct? Because it's outside of the calendar that you observe. That is right. We 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 don't celebrate uh, this feast day because um, it seems that it is a um, it is part of the preconciliar movement of destruction and all. The, uh, and I don't. I think that finally uh, they weren't successful. The, uh, the the authorities in the church were not successful in, and it's only in hindsight that one can see that in the supplanting of uh, a, a very wicked, not a pagan, because pagan goes back to the idea of just nature. I suppose nature worship, but a wickedly revolutionary and anti-Christian concept. Uh, the concept of socialism, the concept of of, rev- of of revolution, and especially the teaching of Marx, uh, this whole idea of uh, the working class and labor as everything, all these really false notions. The Holy Father doubtless sincerely wanted to to provide an antidote, just as many times in history that had been done, the replacement of a pagan feast with a Christian feast, but it didn't work. And I, I wonder why it didn't work. I have some ideas. You know, they say that the church, already in the 20th century, early 20th century, the church had lost the working class in Europe. Um, and so you have somebody like uh, Father Pro, uh, just in his own way, is just a very, very saintly and, and engaging young priest, say, traveling on the train in France or in Belgium and talking to workers and getting them interested in the faith again. Uh, and that that was a wonderful but a one-man effort. But uh, under Pius XII, you had the worker-priest movement, which was a total perversion of what the priesthood is supposed to be. But it was some sort of a desperate, you might say almost last-minute effort, like this feast day of St. Joseph the Worker, desperate last-minute effort to try to reverse things. But uh, it was too late. It was too little. It was too late, and it was wrong, wrong-headed. With with the with the with the liturgical change, what happened was that Saint Joseph, patron saint of the Catholic Church, and it's the Catholic Church's idea, goal, and duty, and responsibility to, as it were, to sanctify work and to save the working class and to get the right concepts back into people's minds and into their lives. Instead of Saint Joseph as 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 the patron saint of the church, now uh, that's just abolished. That's gone. And now this feast day instead becomes a feast day of, of labor. It's too easily co-opted 
into this whole world of um, the pre preconciliar wor world of um, the revolution, the revolution already having made such gains politically. I think of the, the predecessor of Pope Pius XII, Pope Pius XI, who, like Pius XII, all beautiful, very clear Catholic teaching in all of his um, magisterial pronouncements and cyclicals and so forth, his sermons. But in the practical order, Pius XI destroyed the anti-revolutionary spirit and movement in, uh, of the church in France and in effect permitted that, that the that the left-wingers the modernists should r rule the field so the church in France became was ruled by progressives ever since the 1920s and so the 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 field was all set up for uh, the revolution. So it's, it's thoughts like these. And your, and your, your excellency, are you just speaking there about, for example, the, the suppression of Action Francaise, or are you talking about larger issues? The, the suppression, especially the suppression of Action Francaise in France, but also in also in uh, also in Mexico, the uh, the lack of support for the Cristeros, the betrayal of the Cristeros. That's another example of that. It was the same thing. The Church in Mexico, in particular, the Church lost. The common man and the priest and the bishop lost the respect of the common man and somehow ended up just co-opted into the ruling classes or, or the worthless non-working classes, you might say. So everything got really messed up. It really did. We need the patronage of a great saint, but the universal patronage, the Catholic patronage of a great saint like St. Joseph. But that's not in any sense to slight uh, the importance of St. Joseph as the uh, patron saint of all of those who labor. So you have that, as I say, St. Pius X insisted on that, and he wrote a beautiful prayer that we always say Labor Day weekend here at St. Gertrude uh, for for those who work. He, he's the model of those who work. But um, it, it's, so, it's those things that we that we need to emphasize and not the uh, the, the themes of uh, the revolution. So instead of compromising with the revolution, as far as you feel one could possibly go, that seems to have been the, the politic of the church in the 20th century, you, we need to expose the roots of the revolution, show why it's wrong, and be anti-revolutionary. Well, in Your Excellency, I, we might talk a bit about, uh, people may not know why May 1st was chosen. If you say May Day, they might think that we're, in, we're on a ship and we're going down or, or we're on a plane and we're in trouble. Um, so especially sure, for, yeah. for non-European Christians and Catholics, what, uh, what's May Day? I mean, what, what is, what is so that and it, why uh, would you put a Catholic on that? Sure, May Day that, that that goes back to perhaps an ancient fertility festival, the celebration of the coming of spring, and uh, flowers and blossoms and dancing and things like that. Then, uh, with the socialist movement of the 19th century, the first day of May was chosen as the as the feast day of revolution. It's a revolutionary day. It's a day for the workers of the world to unite and to rise up. It's a day for, uh, and it still is today in Europe. It's a day for um, big demonstrations in the squares that often end up in violence for um, demagogic speeches. It's a little bit like Labor Day for us in the United States. Uh, and um, 
in, in the old days of communism, May Day was a day for the huge parades. It was a celebration of, of, of labor. And the idea of the church was then, let's replace that with a Catholic feast day instead. But it never worked. It never took. It wasn't successful. All the old ones that are now enshrined in Catholic life and history and liturgy, they were successful. But this latest one was not successful, especially at such a price of giving up the feast day of the patron saint of the Catholic Church, which used to be kept, of course, for a full octave, a full eight days. Well, for those of you who want to know a little bit more about uh, the suppressed octaves, His Excellency has an excellent piece on traditionalmass.org um, about all the octaves we lost. So this was just uh, another one of those octaves, wasn't it, Your Excellency? It, indeed it was. And the idea of an octave is something uh, symbolic, the, the sacred number of eight, eight being the number of eternity. Seven is the number of this world and life, a day, the, the, the days of work, and then the one day of rest. Eight is for heaven and its reward in paradise. And then it's human nature, too, because man, especially busy man today, uh, man needs a chance to be able to stop and to think, to reflect, to continue, so that we can get the sense of these feast days and really celebrate them, not just one day, but eight days. So that's how the church keeps a feast. That's what we're doing now with Pentecost. The Novus Ordo has abolished the octave of Pentecost. They just have one day for Pentecost. Uh, the, mm. Then we just concluded the octave of the Ascension. That's kept for eight days as well. Corpus Christi coming up. That will be kept for eight days as well. So we, it gives us a chance to really get into the spirit of it. And if we miss one day, we're distracted, we're working, something like that, well then it, there's still plenty of opportunity to, to get in on the spirit of it and, and really to celebrate it and to sort of uh, immerse ourselves in, in, in these, in these uh, Catholic and supernatural ideals. For, for those of you who want to take a look at some of those octaves that His Excellency has been talking about that were suppressed, if you go to traditionalmass.org and you click on articles on the left-hand side and then you click on liturgy, you'll see a drop-down to an article called The Pious Attempt and John the Twenty-Third Missiles Compared. And uh, it's a great side-by-side -side comparison. And you'll see and be shocked, scandalized perhaps, by all the octaves we lost um, or let's say we lost, that were, were stolen from, from Catholics. Um, yes. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Uh, our topic today is St. Joseph the Worker, and we're also talking about some of the other um, feasts we're observing this month, including the Ember Days. My guest is His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church. And uh, we're, we've just been talking about May Day and, and St. Joseph, um, St. Joseph's relation to that, you know, Your Excellency, I think about what you were saying that this is a, a chance. And I, when you say, you know, the worker priest, I think, of course, the epilogue to the worker priest is Graham Greene's whiskey priest. Uh, that's yeah. where you. That's where you. That's where you go when the worker priest movement fails, I guess. But um, the idea. I think the whiskey priest any day of the week, though, Stephen, <laughs> the worker priest, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, especially Graham right. Greene's whiskey priest is. Uh, is uh, in many ways a highly edifying and a very priestly figure, whereas mm. uh, you can't say that about the worker priest, not at all. Right, right. Um, if you look at uh, this time period, we have the idea of using saints to get agendas um, through. So you're talking here about May Day. It's like, all right, we're going to we're going to do this. I'm thinking uh, in this same time period. And, of course, I wasn't around, so I'm just reading about this stuff. 
there was a petition circulating about having St. Joseph in the canon. This was a very, very pious movement, pious petition. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, the sort of famous question that was asked to me by, you know, a priest who, who uses the pre-55, and uh, who obviously that means St. Joseph is not mentioned in the canon. The question is, well, would St. Joseph wanted him? Would St. Joseph want himself inserted into the canon? Uh, I think a double question, one about St. Joseph's humility, about the sort of person he was. He was happy to yeah. remain. I think because mm-hmm. this whole idea was, well, St. Joseph is a neglected saint. We need to include him. We're going to give him this new feast. We're going to include him in the canon. Mm-hmm. Like, well, A, would St. Joseph have campaigned for that? And secondly, what's the real story here? Is the real story that we, you know, we need to add a saint? Because, you know, we, we've got a whole bunch of other saints we can add to the canon. I mean, the canon hasn't been updated for a long time. What was the real story yeah. there? So can you speak a bit about what, you know, that, that idea of using saints to get agendas through and what this particularly meant for St. Joseph historically at this time period? Well, you see the uh, apotheosis or maybe the zenith of that using saints to get things through, oh, during the life of J.P. too, uh, in, in, during which, um, uh, and Paul VI started with Paul VI, so there, if there's an occasion, say, a papal visit to a country, well, okay, now who can we canonize because that's going to be part of our theme and our theme liturgy. So that's how Mother Seton was canonized by uh, Paul VI and, uh, and many, many saints by John Paul II. It's just saints for, for a purpose while at the same time ignoring the message and ignoring the faith of those same saints. What they were after... What, it's an interesting point to consider a little bit the the a certain opposition between uh, the series is called devotions the devotional spirit but the devotional spirit needs to be informed by subjected to and exercised in union with the sacred liturgy the liturgy is the church's formal and public prayer and it's the work of the holy ghost it's beautiful so um if we set up devotions as somehow oppose, opposing the work of the church, then we have false devotions, and then, then we have we have problems. So even in the 19th century, there there was a, there was a, a certain strong movement for putting Saint Joseph in the canon of the mass, but that was based out of ignorance, out of ignorance because as, as Dr. Gear explains in his magisterial work on the mass, all of the saints named in the canon of the mass are martyrs beginning with Our Lady, the Queen of Martyrs. They shed their blood for Christ. St. Joseph's role was not that. He had quite a different role in the economy of salvation. He was not a martyr, so he doesn't belong there. And so St. Joseph, as you say, is the, the hidden, quiet saint. Uh, we, we sometimes, the Father Manton referred to him once as the quiet man in the corner uh, because he's the side altar. St. Joseph it, would never have promoted himself in that sense. He's not a martyr. So it's it's something different. So it shows a lack of um, liturgical sensibility uh, to to want to put him where he doesn't belong. What do the modernists do with that? Why were they so eager to see that uh, achieved? Because the canon means the unchanging rule, the unchanging rule of prayer, of the consecration. This is how it's been fixed ever since the time of... Uh, Gregory the Greater, maybe a little bit after. It's never been changed. The canon of the Mass has been a canon, untouched and untouchable. So they want to introduce uh, the idea of change. So right away, 
uh, John the Twenty Third during the council when it's suggested by some very pious prelate. He right away says, "I'm going to do it. That sounds great. Let's do it. Let's change the canon of the mass." And just a few years later, just a few years later, four or five years later, then you have how many canons of the mass and how many canons do they have today? Eucharistic prayers, they call them today, all full of options and changes and all of the rest. So that which is really a distinguishing characteristic of the Roman Church, her worship, her liturgy, and this great guardian of orthodoxy, the unchanging canon of the mass, it's gone, it's abolished. Now it's lost in the world of options. Um, and they use St. Joseph for the foot in the door. They, right. they often they got, do. They, they often use him. And then they got rid of him, sure, because they had no more use for him. What Lenin called the useful idiots. Uh, right. And useful idiots, he referred especially to Catholic religious and ca- the Catholic hierarchy that went along with, like Pius XI, collecting money for the uh, for the revolution in Russia, to, to supposedly for humanitarian ends, with the thought that this would uh, somehow better the condition of the of the Catholics in Russia, until finally he realized, with the total slaughter uh, of of the Church, that that was not going to happen. And Lenin said, in effect, thank you very much for the support, thank you for the money, uh, and now uh, right right over here, this is the, board the train for Siberia, please. Uh, that's uh, that's. That, that's their they're, very, they're very nice accommodations waiting for you. Yeah, and, and you know, you're, you make a good point. You're absolutely <laughs> because because I grew up in the Novus Ordo, so you know we never heard saints mentioned during the Eucharistic prayer because they just say no. you know and all of the saints you know you know and they just loop them in or they're in, inside parentheses. So they use Saint Joseph to, to further their agenda, and then they got rid of him and all the saints uh, at the same time when they when they when they changed the Eucharistic prayers. But I think this is really yes. important, Your Excellency, yes. because we look at, we have the benefit of hindsight. I think a lot of people, for some reason, trads get, have amnesia and then say, well, but this is really good. And are you against St. Joseph? And would you not want St. Joseph to pray for you? And, and I think part of the problem is this sentimental attachment to different ceremonies or rituals outside of principles. So, for example, some of our listeners might attend a mass that is uh, according to the 1962 missile, but in the 1962 missile, there's no second confidior. But they might right. have, they might attend, they might attend a mass in which there is a second confidior. Well, because you know it's better, or you know, well, we should have Saint Joseph because you know that was a good change. Or uh, why don't we observe a one-hour Eucharistic fast because that makes it a lot easier for me in the morning. And the, and the challenge right. is, so the, if, if there are no yeah. principles underlying what you're talking about, we're going to make the same mistakes that the 1960s Catholics did. And so we have to, we have to, we have to again look at the embers. We have to, we have to sort through the ashes, the ashes of Christendom, the ashes of Catholicism, and find these little embers and blow on them very gently so that they come into a flame and a flame that will destroy all of these non-principled observances and relaxations and innovations to get the Catholic thing, the Catholic fire, uh, burning again. I remember, well, an example of that same spirit would be those who supposedly were following the New Holy Week of Pius XII, but nevertheless observe some things, say Pius X Society, uh, uh, some things from the old Holy Week, because 
it's popular and the people like it, such as the ceremony at the door with the cross, the the uh, Institute of Christ, the Sovereign High Priest, uh, the, that uh, that rallied movement. They they observe that. Um, it's it's a little bit that that same that that same idea. There aren't principles. It's just likes and dislikes. Uh, and you end up in Pius X society. That was very very strong. I think the first time I ever gave serious thought to this whole question of Saint Joseph the Worker uh, was uh, uh, on the feast day once, saying the office at a cone with the other seminarians for the office of sect, the noonday prayer. And uh, the responsory for the, the little the little bit of scripture that's read after the psalms is called the chapter, and then there's a responsory that's repeated. Uh, it starts out with, O magnum dignitatem laboris, O great is the dignity of labor, and then it goes on to say, because our Lord himself worked. What they wanted here, talk about using St. Joseph, what they wanted here was to get this idea of the great dignity of labor in, uh, and then go from that to, if I may make a plug here, the work of human hands. And uh, we have uh, the work of our hands to offer in the offertory of the new mass and this whole Teardian concept, finally. Profoundly naturalistic and Teardian. So it's a, it's, a, it's a movement away from a total divorce of the real Catholic understanding of work uh, such as shown by, say, St. Pius X, St. Joseph, and all of the saints of Catholic history. The Catholic understanding of work is to say that, yes, Almighty God put uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and had them labor, but uh, the work was for them delightful and pleasant. Because of original sin, now the work was going to bring them thorns, and they had to labor in the sweat of their brow. Now there would be tears involved. Work as we know it is a punishment for sin. We are meant humbly to accept it from the hands of Almighty God and then to sanctify it as as much as possible uh, in, in our daily life. And so our devotion, such as a devotion to St. Joseph, are meant to help us to do to do exactly that. And, and not to exalt it in and of itself, as though that were that were the thing. And so then in the Novus Ordo, finally, we offer the work of our hand to God, and then it comes back to us somehow spiritualized, like this perversion of the concept of what the offertory is. So talking about principles, yes. All of these principles have been misshapen, perverted again. Everything's been perverted. We have to get back to the true Catholic principles, uh, and without any uh, on any fear or spirit of compromise, the world of the 20th century, including the world of remnant Catholicism, the 20th century, is always one of compromise. You're always looking around your shoulder because you have to go along to get along, and it's always a world of ambiguity. The doctrines of and documents of Vatican II. No, we have to. There are some embers lurking in all of those ashes. We have to blow them back into life again. And one of them is uh, a true devotion to St. Joseph and a true understanding of uh, the nature of human work and labor. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat thy bread till thou return to the earth out of which thou wast taken. Genesis 3. Mm. It's, uh, I was really interested in what you're saying here, actually. I, but I, when you said work of human hands, apart from thinking about Father Chicago's great book, mm-hmm. I got a little shudder because I, I remember the prayer from the Novus Ordo um, 
fruit of the earth, work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. That may be a very familiar yeah. text for some of our listeners um, who attend the Novus Ordo. Indeed. Um, Indeed. If you're, for the, our listeners who are not as familiar with why the offertory was changed or, or frankly, why the new offertory is, is really a, a striking departure from Catholicism, um, Father Anthony Cicada recently put out a new video on the offertory specifically, if you go to youtube.com forward slash work of human hands and you look at the newest video, um, Tehard's Offertory, you can uh, learn a little bit more about why this was such a fundamental thing because I suppose, Your Excellency, the offertory, you could say, is the axis on which the Mass uh, goes from the first part of the Mass to the second. And if you if you yes. take away the axis, maybe the whole thing falls. And the And the offertory is that which makes, uh, although it's mostly a silent prayer, the offertory is that which makes obvious the sacrificial essence of the Mass. So the Mass is not an assembly, and it's not a celebration of human, of human work and human occasions and desires and aspirations. It is the offering of a sacrifice to God. I remember that one of our professors at Acone, uh, Dominican scriptural scholar, Father Speak, uh, would refer to the idea of offering bread and wine to God as a blasphemy. Because the only thing in the New Testament that we offer to God, strictly speaking, is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We offer God to God, because only God is worthy of God. And everything else is offered in an accommodated or secondary sense but not on the Novus Ordo. That's why people should listen to the YouTube and, and buy the book and, and, and read about the, the offertory of the Mass. gives us the whole of the Mass. It makes it very specific what's going on at the Mass. I think some of our listeners might, might have the question mark of, well, Your Excellency, if you're going to remove St. Joseph the Worker as something from consideration, you know, what, what can we offer in its place? I mean, apart from the Ember Days, and this isn't solely a show on, on the cult of St. Joseph. I think that would be a really great show to do for the future. Um, mm -hmm. Thinking about the idea of the other observances, the other ways that we can really get into what the spirit of St. Joseph is, as opposed to an alleged patron saint of the modern worker movement, which is, as you have pointed out, been perverted and been co-opted by forces that, one, are happy to use St. Joseph, you know, for however it'll help get inside the, the minds of, of people who don't know what the real agenda is. But I think about like the right. Court of St. Joseph or the Chaplet of St. Joseph as, as other ways that we can understand the mind of, of, of that saint and, 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 and try to be, participate in his spirit. And I would, um, but, in, but in, the good, in the good spirit of replacement of the bad observances with, uh, with, the, with the Catholic ones and the Christianization of, of modern culture, I'd observe, I'd urge any priest that may listen to this seriously to consider always on Labor Day celebrating the votive mass of St. Joseph and then speaking about the true relationship of, Catholic, of the Catholic Church to labor, its true concept, and St. Joseph as, as the true and the glorious model of that. Usually Labor Day is a votive day, uh, excuse me, a burial day that permits a votive mass. This year I think it's going to be the Feast of St. Pius X, but that's an interesting place to go to for, for mm -hmm. some of these, uh, these same themes. Uh, so we always, we always want to be Catholics in that sense of, of um, and that goes back to the Ember Days, doesn't it? The idea of civil observances, facts, parts of everybody's life, 
well, uh, in America, we're stuck with our holidays. Is there a way that you can that you can somehow baptize, or draw in, or learn a lesson from, uh, profit from these civil American holidays? If there is, let's use it for the greater honor and glory of God, and then only secondarily, of course, for education, formation, the, the um, uh, of our Catholic people, because everybody needs it desperately today. No question about that. Well, Your Excellency, you alluded to, and we have some other feasts this month. I, you know, we're getting closer towards the end of our show. Um, not quite there mm-hmm. yet, but could you speak briefly about the? We also have the Rogation Days this month, and then next next week we're going to have Corpus Christi. And I think we were talking before the show about the the temptation. At least, as I said, growing up in the Novus Ordo, I watched this happen all the time. That Ascension Thursday was Ascension Sunday all the time. Because we couldn't yeah. possibly be expected to go to Mass on Thursday. Well, that's not Sunday. Why would we go to Mass on Thursday? Uh, so clearly we have to transfer this feast so that no one will will uh, be accused of uh, being remiss. So could you speak briefly yes. about the rogation days and then Corpus Christi? It's that, it's that idea, Stephen, of blocking out, pushing back God, secularization. So let's knock down the extra churches and we don't need the monasteries anymore. That's the, the tragedy of, of, of post-revolutionary Europe. Uh, and it's, a, it's the same idea. Well, let's just reduce God to one day a week and one hour or 50-minute period of that, of that day. It's, it's always less and less for God and more and more for the God of this world, which would be money or pleasure or something like that. So uh, the, the, these feast days that we have that, that take place on specific days, Ascension Thursday, Corpus Christi, th- the Thursday after Trinity Sunday. The uh, Rogation Day is also called the Lesser Litanies, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before Ascension Thursday. They're all very important, and they point out that, that idea that Catholics can't live without, that every day is for God, but there are some days that are really for God. And on these days, you should so arrange your life in the measure possible to participate or at least live in the spirit of it somehow. Because when you, it's a typical Novus Ordo hypocrisy, isn't it? When you reduce everything, to, oh, we'll, we'll observe that on Sunday. But then they don't really observe it on Sunday uh, because uh, they're going to observe it at the cocktail hour liturgy on Saturday night. Uh, and then and then maybe there's something else, some other human theme that they want to celebrate. But in any case, they're certainly not going to hear the uh, orthodox doctrine of the ascension of Christ body and soul into heaven proclaimed, that would be extremely rare because the Novus Ordo Popes don't believe it themselves, so there'd be a little contradiction there. So it's all it's all more of that hypocrisy, it's all more of that secularization, and that's that that's our battle against these things. But briefly, the um rogation days uh are better referred to as the litanies, uh because the litany of the saints are meant to be chanted in procession going outside with the idea of sanctifying the world, sanctifying the fields in particular, praying for the grace of a good harvest. The uh, uh, major litanies we have every year on St. Mark's Day in April, they are they're said to, be, to commemorate the actual calendar day on which St. Peter first entered the city of Rome. And then the... Uh, so that's Roman observance, the greater litanies. And then the... 
lesser litanies, the Rogation days that precede Ascension Thursday, those come more from France, or more of a French observance. And um, they're partly the, um, the replacement of this Robigalia, the pagan festival against uh, against uh, frost or a kind of a mold that would that would destroy the crops, anything that maybe would hurt the crops. And so they would pray to the to the pagan gods for uh, a good harvest. And then the but the other thought of it, particularly for Saint Meritus of Vienne, who really instituted the lesser litanies, was um, during a time of great catastrophes. Maybe you think in terms of last night's. Um, Yesterday's terrible uh, tornadoes in outside of Oklahoma City. So imagine that, and then maybe there would be in a war and an invasion, and then there would be a plague, uh, and then there would be a drought, and then one thing after another. So that finally people were forced, as it were, to their knees. That would be the old observance. The, the new observance today in our world would be that you would have to get Congress to pass a new law to make all this bad stuff go away. And then the president would get on the TV and he'd talk about it. But the old way is to pray, to ask Almighty God to have mercy on us, to spare us. That's the origin of the lesser litanies, these three days of very intensive, faith-filled prayer and penitential prayer, too. They were a response to the disasters, the natural disasters, not passing of laws, not preaching against global warming uh, and watching our carbon footprint. It was instead to put our footprints on the earth in prayer, and especially the liturgical prayer, which is very, very powerful with God, the prayer of the litany of the saints. It's the church's, um, you might say, urgent or emergency. In case of need, you know, break, break through, get, get out the litany of the saints. It's a very, very powerful prayer. She uses them for, uh, for the ordination to the major orders. Um, she uses them for times of great need. Uh, for example, when a pope is dying, then the litany of the saints is said. Um, and then also uh, for, uh, it's kind of ritualized now, to these days in the spring to pray for a good harvest and for all of the natural needs that we have. Hardly anybody observes them. Uh, they're just, uh, the priest is, is, is obliged to say the litanies privately. Unfortunately, even many priests in many chapels don't don't observe these things, and that's very sad because it's that same spirit of minimalism that uh, you know. Let's just have my have my mass in the morning and get get that over with, and maybe we'll do something on Sunday sometime, but probably not. That's the whole modern spirit of spirit of secularism and of and of minimalism that's affected even many of our priests and, and many of our faithful, many of our people. Of course, we're not too faithful in this. But uh, that's our work. Our, our work is to find the embers and, and, and to blow them back again. Our Lord specifically asked for the Feast of Corpus Christi uh, for the Thursday after Trinity Sunday because he told the mystic Juliana of Montcornillon the, uh, that this was the one, the one thing missing in the, in the beauty of the liturgical cycle. There was, no, there was no feast specifically to honor the Blessed Sacrament took a long time, over a century, for that feast finally to get established by Rome. There are many delays and many obstacles to be overcome, but finally it, finally it did happen, and now we have this, uh, this, this glorious feast, and it's a Thursday feast, like our Lord asked for the Feast of the Sacred Heart on Friday. It's a Friday feast, the Friday after the octave uh, day of Corpus Christi. is meant to be a day of reparation for the outrages that our Lord 
has received in the Blessed Sacrament during the time of adoration uh, and the exposition of the Sacred Host. So these are days that God has asked for. It goes back a little bit to the idea of um, Pope St. Sylvester, one of the first non-martyr saints uh, at the time of Constantine. He is the Pope, and uh, he names the days of the week. And he names the days of the week Feria. And Feria is a holiday in, in, in Latin, in Roman Latin, uh, pagan Roman Latin. It means a holiday. So the idea is, is that Monday in the church's calendar is called Feria Secunda, the second holiday. Holiday in what sense? Are you not supposed to work? No. A man has to work in the, in the sweat of his brow. He has, to, he has to earn his bread. But we are meant at the same time as we do this work to keep a holiday unto the Lord. For the clergy, for the church herself, every day is, is, is supposed to be dedicated to the worship of God. You've got your liturgical hours of the divine office, the mass, all of the solemnities and the occurring observances uh, throughout the course of the year. Uh, so that's that's the Catholic attitude. And then there are certain days, many days, you know, in the Middle Ages it was as many as one-third of, of the days of the year, were non-working days. They were days of, of a true holiday, a true holy day, in, in which uh, it was an obligation to assist at Mass and to abstain from servile labor. And in the Middle Ages... Uh, Labor was, uh, was, was viewed as a necessary thing. It was a necessary evil. We weren't singing about the great dignity of it. We knew it was necessary, but it was at the same time difficult. And uh, uh, we, we, the church welcomed uh, the, all the opportunities to get away from labor a little bit and have a, a little bit of rest, as, we, as we're meant to do still today on Sundays, sort of in anticipation of heavenly glory. That's really, though, all these things, that's really the Catholic spirit. So you see where, when the liturgy begins to be understood and lived a little bit, then you're, you're blowing on the embers and you're getting the fire going again. When we think about um, Corpus Christi, we also have that tie, I think, to the Feast of Christ the King later in the year where we have this great adoration for the body of our Lord or his person and that we want to make public we want to make public that that private belief and again going back to what we've said earlier in today's show the idea of not just confining our lord to the church but that there is there's a tie to the seasons there's a tie to our secular life um and this yes. is part of that larger issue yeah, and that's something Unfortunately, it would, that you would only have seen maybe in the old, old days, the 19th century, in ethnic Catholic parishes, German especially, and uh, Polish, where the, the Corpus Christi celebration, as in Europe, took place throughout the, through the streets of the neighborhood. And in, in the neighborhoods, you would see the altars, uh, the repository set up, in which the priest would pause with the Blessed Sacrament and give benediction, and people would decorate their homes. Europe, uh, still today in some places, it's, it's observed that way. It's the one day that our Lord claims and receives the homage of the world, and uh, literally traffic is meant to stop for Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And if you get a parade permit, do it the right way, you could still have that happen. It's kind of a neat thing, and, it, but it's, and it's deeply, deeply uh, symbolic. Uh, but usually, you have to do that on a Sunday because in our in our world, everyone's gotten so very far away from the observance of any kind of a church uh, occasion on on a weekday. 
For those of you who are just joining us now, we are at the tail end of our show. Um, this is Restoration Radio. I'm Stephen Heyer. I'm with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, and we've been talking about a lot of things today, um, St. Joseph the Worker, Amber Days, Rogation Days, and a little bit about the Feast of Corpus Christi. There's just so much going on this month. You mean you mentioned uh, Pentecost and, and the Ascension. We're just jam-packed, and we don't have time to, to talk about it. We don't have time to talk about everything today. I think sometimes people forget that, you know, we think about the feasts are jam-packed, but that means uh, a lot of uh, liturgical work for you also. Oh, it certainly does. These are, these are in a sense, after, after, after Lent, the very busiest uh, days of the year. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's joy to any priest's heart. There are, there are so many possibilities uh, with confirmation, especially being a bishop now with confirmation, and then with the distribution of First Holy Communion, the formation of children, the, the devotional um, procession of Mother's Day and the uh, May crowning observance. Looking at my calendar now, Stephen, another thing that occurs to me in the same Catholic spirit of replacing something secular or merely civil or sanctifying it, baptizing it, would be Memorial Day. So Memorial Day is a kind of a spring All Souls Day for people. It's not just for the veterans. It's a day in which many, many Americans will go to the cemetery and they'll visit Grandma's grave and they may clean it off and plant some flowers or something like that. It's another great liturgical opportunity to have a requiem mass and to have a, 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 a fitting sermon on some topic related to that, perhaps even the absolution at the catafalque. Uh, as, as a way of liturgically praying for the uh, poor souls. These are all opportunities that we have in our secular society. That's all we have left, if you will, of holy days are these secular observances. But if we can somehow baptize them, then we've got the true spirit of things. We're not abolishing some beautiful feast, as unfortunately happened with St. Joseph the Worker. We're not subscribing to some really suspicious, if not heterodox, um, theology, as also happened with that feast. What we're doing is is uh, the old Catholic way of baptizing secular observances or pagan observances, um, and then bringing using them as an opportunity and occasion to to bring out some Catholic themes in our life, things that need to be done because we need to pray for the poor souls, just as we need to adore the Blessed Sacrament, just as we need to crown the Virgin Mary and renew our devotion to her. Those are all very important things. Yes, and I, I think when you say that about Memorial Day, I think that's a great challenge because some people may not have, um, let's say, someone who served in the military in their family, or they may not. But that's a great opportunity to go to a cemetery and 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 put yourself in that spirit and maybe say a few prayers for some of those souls there that uh, maybe have no one else to pray for them. Sure, because uh, see, there's there's a cultural remnant in Mexico and also in Catholic Europe for uh, All Souls Day. So that's entered into the general culture, and people still go to cemeteries. And uh, in France, you know, you buy chrysanthemums and you 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 go to the cemetery. And in many countries, still, you you light candles at the grave the night on, on the night of All Saints' Day. There are all these wonderful observances. We don't have that in our country. That's uh, it's just a uh, it's a day that you have to squeeze mass in. That's what holy days have become for us. But we do have Memorial Day. So, and since Memorial Day is, is observed in that, that sense anyway, why not capitalize on that and um, do something? Do something really, instead of just you know, do a barbecue, that's fine. But why not really help the poor souls? 
why not uh, have a have a requiem mass? Why not have an absolution at the catafalque, uh, and then urge people to go to graves, to Catholic cemeteries, to pray for their loved ones, to visit the grave, to show that respect for the for for, for the dead, and 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 to pray for the poor souls in purgatory. Well, I think you're speaking to a really important point, Your Excellency, which is there is a way to Catholicize everything. Uh, and I think there sometimes uh, we, we we forget about that. And I have to say, you know, Your Excellency, I don't think it's very fair to Americans. We certainly do celebrate our religion on holidays, the religion of shopping, the religion of watching right. sports, <laughs> and the religion of yes, barbecue. Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, I, yes. I would caution you that Americans are very religious on their holidays. Uh, they they uh, well, pay attention uh, to their religious observances. A well-deserved rebuke, as uh, the uh, revolting Israelites said of old, with the golden calf: "These are your gods, O Israel. Uh, we are we are given our gods to to worship, and we bow down before them, our golden calves, all of the time. Absolutely." Then the Catholic the Catholic rejoinder might be available for a limited time only. Right. Yes. Advertising. Sometimes we we'll have to speak about advertising as a temptation to sin, but um, that's. Uh, if you have time at, 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 at towards the end of our show now, if you have time, I'd like to tell a story about Saint Joseph. We spoke a little bit today about Saint Joseph as, a, as the model, the patron saint of those who work, and how our, our observance as Americans probably would more be Memorial Day week, or excuse me, Labor Day weekend, or around the feast day of Saint Joseph or his month of March. But uh, St. Joseph, I, I think about him for a moment as the, so you have labor and, and work and the labor movement and all and socialism. You have all of these profoundly revolutionary themes that are truly revolting to a well-formed Catholic. But what about the exaltation of St. Joseph as the, as the anti-revolutionary model, the model for the worker, the model for the poor? Uh, as well as, in a sense, the model for the for the wealthy. So there's a story that I came across about uh, a time where the time of a plague in, in which uh, the the poor were reduced to famine, and a, and a good parish priest is making his rounds and he's going to visit a dying man who has sold everything uh, to, to get a little food at the beginning of the famine, and so now he's uh, he's in a, somebody's barn and he's dying on a pile of hay. And uh, he has nothing more than the sawn, whatever little instruments he used to use, along with his arms, to gain, to gain his livelihood. And um, so the priest comes in, and the priest sees this man dying in, in hunger and great poverty, this poor old man, nothing to show for his life, and he's lost everything. And he, he's moved with pity for him, and he attempts to console him, and he says, Have courage, my friend. Uh, it's a great grace which, which God grants you today. You're going to depart from this veil of tears where you've known only sorrow. And the, the dying man raises himself up on his straw, and he says, Father, sorrow? Oh, no, you're wrong. I took St. Joseph as my patron saint and model. And like him, I've never complained of my lot. I knew neither hate nor envy. My sleep was peaceful. I worked hard by day, but I rested every night. The tools that you see here, these saws, provided me with the bread that I ate every day with joy. It's true. I, I, I was a poor man. But St. Joseph was just as poor. And I've kept fairly well body and soul together up to now. If God allows me to recover, which I doubt, 
I'll return to my to my work, and I'll continue to bless the hand of God, who is always taking care of me. The priest was astounded at his Christian spirit of resignation, and also his his real imitation of Saint Joseph. And um, but he thought, being a priest, he thought he'd, he'd better at least give him some kind of a little admonition. So he says, "My friend, even if your life hasn't been all that bad, nevertheless, now you must be resigned to leave it, because one must submit." to the will of God. And the, the, pre, the, uh, the poor man responds with, uh, with dignity, and he says, Father, I knew how to live, and now I will know how to die. I bless the Lord for having given me life and for allowing me to pass through death in order to reach him. I feel uh, the time is at hand. Here it is. Goodbye, Father. And then he, he closes his eyes, and he dies full of peace, exactly the way he, he lived. That is a real imitation of St. Joseph. Uh, and in so, so doing, you see, you see that the beauty of the real concept of St. Joseph, the patron saint of the worker, not the patron saint of, of, of the unionist and the demonstrations and communism and, and all, all of it, and, and the, indeed the perversion of capitalism and the perversion of, of labor today, but the patron saint of a, of a virtuous, poor life that's, that's lived in union with the will of God. Not a revolutionary, but a saint. That's, that's the model that, that St. Pius X had in mind when he lifted up St. Joseph as a patron saint of the workers. I think that's an excellent place, probably, Your, your Excellency, to end our show today. Um, mm-hmm. great, great story and um, a way for us to be mindful of St. Joseph. And I think the only footnote I would add is, you know, there are some among our listenership who who attend Mass where they do celebrate St. Joseph the Worker. And I think it's important to note we're not trying to attack where you go to Mass um, today. I think all we're trying to do is examine where, you know, what the historical reasons were for this feast. Um, His Excellency shared why he he thinks it might not have been successful, but it's uh, it's not not supposed to be used as a a way for us to... um, Condemn a, a particular liturgy per se. I think it, we're just trying to take a look at this, an honest, an honest and and frank look at this feast. It, it, inevitably, today, because there is no authority in the church, uh, there will be uh, different approaches that will be taken by a particular uh, group of uh, priests or a bishop, a, a leader, um, and it's it's not for us to condemn somebody else. But but truly, as, as you emphasized a little bit earlier on in the program, Stephen, our work is to find out the principles and to think about the principles, having discovered them, talk about them and talk them up, uh, and, th- and then to promote them, to promote them in charity and humility, not in a revolutionary spirit of destruction or disrespect, which would be totally antithetical to the Catholic spirit or certainly the example of St. Joseph, who is the most obedient saint and the most humble saint, but rather in the idea of working towards a, a Catholic restoration. If we don't observe some of these preconciliar changes, it's in the spirit of appealing to the common father, the Pope. There is no Pope today. And so, therefore, we presume humbly that uh, the changed conditions would justify the non-observance of certain liturgical laws, uh, which seem to us now to have been so changed that they actually produce a bad effect. Nevertheless, there are others who simply rest content with the the, the uh, then valid legislation of the church, and we shouldn't we certainly shouldn't condemn them, and it shouldn't be a cause of of any bitterness, enmity, or division between us. 
uh, this is just one of those things which will remain to be debated and to be discussed amongst Catholics, but it should be done in the proper spirit. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what His Excellency does on a daily basis, um, or on a monthly and a yearly basis, you can go to sggresources.org. Um, and look at some of the the work that he does there in Mexico and other places. And if you like, if you liked what you heard from His Excellency today, um, he gave a great sermon um, this last Sunday on your faults, which we all have. And you can find that at sgg.org. Excellency, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Restoration Radio, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Restoration Radio, and you can link to all of our work at www.truerestoration.org. Excellency, again, thank you. I know it's the middle of the week, so I'll let you get back to your work, but thanks uh, so much for joining us today and and enlightening us on, I think, all of these really important issues. Oh, you're very welcome. It's certainly my my pleasure and my privilege. Now I'm going to run into church where we're having a specially festive Mass for uh, actually the fourth great Mass of Pentecost, Pentecost uh, Tuesday. And I'll, I'll keep everybody in my prayers, and please pray for me. God bless you. Thank, thank you, Your Excellency. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we'll leave His Excellency, and we'll leave you, our listeners, um, with uh, Salve Mater. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.